Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 21 to 43 this morning. Last week we covered the passage about Jesus calming a storm. And I pointed out that in the Old Testament only God could instantly calm a storm. Mark was giving one reason early Christians believed that Jesus was God with us. We also talked about Jesus' healing of a demon-possessed man who then wanted to travel with Jesus. Jesus told him to go home and tell what great things God had done for him. This morning we have one story sandwiched in between another story. In other words, Mark begins telling us one story and then interrupts it with another story, and then he comes back to finish the first story. This technique is actually characteristic of Mark. He does it several times. In this case, he starts by telling us the story of one of the rulers of the synagogue who pleads with Jesus to heal his daughter. While Jesus is on his way to do just that, a woman came up from behind him seeking healing for a hemorrhage. After Mark tells what happened to her, Mark goes back to the original story. Why does Mark tell stories this way? We'll come back to that later. For now, let's begin by reading Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders, named Jairus, came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes this morning and help us to see something from your word that maybe we haven't noticed before. And help us to put it into practice in our lives. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 21 says that Jesus crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake. Now, remember, in the context, Jesus had been on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, which would be in modern Syria. This was a Gentile region known as the Decapolis. Jesus was now crossing back over into Galilee. We're not told where in Galilee, but I think the most likely guess is back home in Capernaum. At any rate, the word got out that he was there, and soon a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. In verse 22, Jesus was met by a man named Jairus, who was one of the synagogue leaders. Since the local synagogue was also the center of social, educational, and community life, Jairus was undoubtedly an important and highly respected man in the community. He came to Jesus through the crowd and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading for Jesus to heal his daughter, who was dying. Verses 24 and 25, so Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. A woman who was there who had been subject to a bleeding for 12 years. Now, it's not entirely clear what this medical condition was. The best guess is that it was an excessively long and heavy menstrual bleeding. Now, this doesn't mean she bled continually for 12 years or she might have died from loss of blood. More likely, it means that she was afflicted with this excessive bleeding each month for 12 years. It could make her unable to ever feel strong or healthy. There are medical treatments for this today, but back then it was incurable, and she had it for 12 years. 
An important factor in this story is that according to the Old Testament law, a woman was ceremonially unclean during this time, and anyone she touched would become ceremonially unclean. Without going into detail, this condition may have left her socially and spiritually isolated. But that wasn't bad enough. Verse 26 says she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Some of you can relate to suffering under the care of many doctors, but I hope your doctors are more competent than hers. The Jewish Talmud records some treatments for this kind of disease. One remedy consists of drinking a goblet of wine containing a powder composed from rubber, alum, and garden crocuses. No wonder verse 26 says that also that although she had spent all she had, she just kept getting worse. In other words, she was broke, possibly all alone, and in an utterly hopeless situation. Verses 27 and 28 say, When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, If I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Now, the text doesn't tell us why she didn't just go up and ask Jesus for help. It could be because she was a woman and Jewish men wouldn't usually speak to women in public. She didn't know Jesus very well, did she? Another reason could be that, as I said, her condition made her ceremonially unclean, so everyone she touched would become ceremonially unclean. She may have been afraid that Jesus and the others would be angry that she was in the crowd in the first place. But she was desperate. And wasn't going to let that keep her from, from Jesus. She had great faith in Jesus, thinking that if she could just touch his cloak, that would be enough to heal her. It was a last resort, but it was certainly worth a try. And that is precisely what she did. And then the impossible happened. Verse 29, immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. It worked. It sounds like she could actually feel power from Jesus healing her. As she was melting back into the crowd, however, verse 30 says that at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? Now, Jesus' disciples thought this was a very strange thing to ask since he was in the middle of a crowd that was pushing up against him. But according to verse two, 32, Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And the woman was terrified. She didn't know what Jesus would do. Would he be angry for making him and the people in the crowd unclean? Would she be publicly shamed and humiliated for exposing the crowd to her condition? In a society in which honor and shame were everything, to be publicly shamed in front of her whole town would have been almost a fate worse than death. But she decided to come clean and confess what she had done. Verse 33 says, Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. Then another amazing thing happened. Rather than hearing Jesus' condemnation in verse 34, she heard his compassion. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace be freed from your suffering. Verse 35, we come back to the original story again. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. 
Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? In other words, it's too late, Jairus. Jesus may be a great healer, but not even a great healer can raise the dead. So don't bother him anymore. There's nothing he can do now. Jesus overheard the conversation. So according to verse 36, Jesus told Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. Now, this is the point where some pastors might say that when you confront the problems and illnesses of your life, you just need to believe and have more faith, like Jairus or the woman in the story. The problem is that there are people who have faith who are not healed. Even Paul prayed three times for what most scholars believe was some physical affliction, but God didn't heal him. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. Timothy was plagued with stomach problems. And we know that he wasn't healed either because Paul had suggested that Timothy take a little wine for his stomach's sake. Of course, it's important to have faith, to believe that with God all things are possible. But unless we get some undeniable personal revelation that Jesus is going to heal us, all we can do is believe that Jesus has the power to heal. And that if we ask in faith, he may do so in this life. And if not, he will certainly do so in the life to come. According to verses 37 to 40, Jesus only allowed Peter, James, John, Jairus, and Jairus' wife to accompany him into the house. Meanwhile, verse 38 says that people were crying and wailing loudly. In Jesus' time, there were actually professional mourners whom you could pay to come to the funeral to ensure that there was a lot of loud crying and wailing so the deceased would be properly mourned. That may be a lot of what's going on here although the general, genuine mourning was also occurring. In verse 39, Jesus told the crowd, child is not dead, but asleep. The child was, of course, actually quite dead. I think Jesus was making the point that death itself, like sleep, is not the end. We will one day wake up from death. As Daniel 12:2 says, multitudes who sleep in the dust of this earth will awake some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Either way, death is just a temporary condition. Verse 40 says the people laughed at him. Don't jump over this too quickly. Remember the last time someone laughed at you? Not at your joke, but at you personally. How did it feel? That's what they were doing to Jesus. After Jesus went in the house, verse 41 says, he took the dead little girl's hand and said to her, Talithakum, which is Aramaic, the common language of Israel in Jesus' day. It was probably the language Jesus spoke, usually spoke every day. And Mark translates it, little girl, I say to you, get up. Verse 42 says that the people were completely astonished when the formerly dead girl got up and walked around. Literally no one but Jesus expected this outcome. Now, it's one thing to say that Jesus healed people. It's quite another thing to say that he even raised the dead. Most secular scholars, therefore, do not believe that Jesus actually raised dead people to life. Dead people, they insist, simply do not come back to life. At Paul Chavis's memorial service last week, I told a story of a man who died of a heart attack in a Florida hospital. After having been dead for some time, he came back to life when a Christian doctor prayed for him. I told everyone that this was not the case, or this was not the only case like that, but I didn't take time to elaborate. 
Craig Keener, whom I've mentioned several times before, also tells stories of eyewitness accounts of people being raised from the dead. So, for example, in Sri Lanka, a pastor became seriously ill and was taken to a hospital where he was pronounced dead after all efforts to revive him had failed. But believers kept praying. About 24 hours later, the pastor came back to life. A pastor in Mumbai recounts that in May 2007, more than 100 believers were gathered at a camp when they noticed a young boy lying motionless at the bottom of a pool. Jaya, a nurse who had been part of the church, found no pulse, no breathing, no other signs of life. The boy was taken to a doctor who pronounced him officially dead. Meanwhile, Christians kept praying. Sure enough, an hour and a half later, the boy came back to life. Normally, I would be pretty skeptical about stories like these, but Craig Keener, who wrote about all these things, is a widely respected and godly biblical scholar. I do not believe he's making this stuff up. The stories he reports are verified by eyewitnesses, in some cases by medical personnel in hospitals. Anyway, my point is that the critics say that this story about Jesus raising the dead simply cannot be true because dead people never, ever, ever come back to life. But the critics are just plain factually wrong. The fact is that there have been verified accounts of dead people coming back to life. and There's no good reason to doubt this story about Jairus about Jesus raising Jairus' daughter. There is a significant difference, however. The stories Keener tells about raising of the dead, and even the story of Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead, are technically resuscitations, not resurrections. In resuscitations, the dead person comes back to life, but will eventually die again. In some of the stories Keener tells, some of the people who were resuscitated still had some of the medical conditions they had before they died. For example, in one case, doctors tried to revive a person using chest compressions and actually broke his ribs in the process. When the man later came back to life, he still had the broken ribs. In a resurrection, on the other hand, the resurrected person has a new physical but glorified body, which will never decay, get sick, or die again. Jesus is the only one who has ever been resurrected. He promises that one day we will be resurrected also, not merely resuscitated. That brings us to an entirely different question. Why does Mark sandwich these two stories together? In other words, why does he start with the story of Jairus' daughter and then go to the story of the woman and then back to Jairus? Well, I think the first reason is because it probably actually happened that way. But even so, Mark could have told them as separate stories. I think Mark may tell some of his stories this way because he wants us to compare and contrast the two stories. So notice that these two stories have a lot in common. In both stories, Jesus is surrounded by a crowd. Both stories are about females, whom Jesus calls daughter, and both are healed by Jesus. The number 12 is found in both stories. In other words, the woman has been afflicted with her medical condition for as long as the little girl has been alive. Both stories have to do with ceremonial uncleanness. When the woman touched Jesus, that should have made him unclean. And when Jesus touched the dead girl, that should have made him unclean. In both cases, however, it is Jesus who makes them clean or healed. 
Finally, in both cases, Jesus is rebuked by others. All these similarities make the differences stand out, and the differences are much more important. For example, as the synagogue leader, Jairus is an important man of significant social and probably financial status who approaches Jesus face to face. The woman could hardly be more different. She is a woman, which in that culture had little, if any, public status. She had spent all her money on doctors and was apparently in poverty. She didn't dare approach Jesus face to face, but came up secretly behind him, daring only to touch his robe. Yet under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark may have sandwiched these stories together to make the point that none of this mattered to Jesus. In other words, Jesus was just as concerned for the woman who was ceremonially unclean and had no status and no money as he was for the man who was a prestigious, well-respected religious leader. That's my first lesson for this morning. Someone's sex, influence, economic status, and as we saw last week, even ethnic background, just didn't matter to Jesus. And it should not matter to us either. As Jesus' followers, we need to follow his example. Second, Jesus could not only heal medical conditions that were incurable, he could also raise the dead. And unlike the cases Keener reports in which people were raised from the dead in answer to prayer, Jesus could raise the dead simply by commanding it. In fact, these stories were not even really about faith. Yes, the woman had faith, but no one had faith that the dead girl would be raised. In other words, these stories are not so much about us and our faith as they are about Jesus and his power. They are about the one in whom we are to place our faith. Third, we need to always keep in mind that death, like sleep, is not a permanent condition. Jesus brought the little girl back to life. He would later bring Lazarus back to life. Jesus, the one who is the resurrection and the life, promises to bring us back to life one day. Not just life as some disembodied spirit playing harps on a cloud, but life in a physical resurrected body, like the physical resurrected body Jesus had, a body that will never suffer or be disabled or get sick or die. We need to view all of life from that perspective. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to love others regardless of race, sex, social status, or economic status. Help us to keep all of life in perspective by focusing on the one who is the resurrection and the life and who will bring us back to resurrected life someday. It is in his name we pray. Amen.